Let's open with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, you are so good. You are so good. You know uh, every need here. You know my need here to make your word clear. I so often make your word muddy and not as clear as you make it. And I just ask for your presence. I ask for your Holy Spirit. We expect you to speak. We know that you will speak. And we know that when we come to the bread of life, you're not going to give us a stone or a serpent, but you're going to give us the living word that it has power to transform by your spirit. Just open your word to us. Help us as hearers to not only hear, but to walk out and do what your word has commanded us by your spirit, by the gospel. We just thank you for all that you provided in Christ. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Today, we're going to be in John 4. And I guess I put 46 up there, but we're actually going to start reading in 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them what hour, asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew. That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The second sign. In 1979, there was a two-year-old boy who was seriously ill. His parents had tried everything. They had prayed, but he was still very sick. And he had spent a week in the hospital, children's hospital, in Baltimore, waiting to hear what the doctors would say. He was so little that he didn't know what was going on. And yet, his parents prayed. His parents tried several different things. But the doctors said there was nothing they could do. They said before 
the age of five in just a few years. Um, he was only about two years old at the time, and before the age of five, he would die if they didn't find out why he was sick and why this had happened to him. Well, that little boy was me when I was only two. And I would not be standing here if it wasn't for parents that loved God and loved me enough to pray and ask for healing. And I stand here today because of God's grace, because of his mercy. The doctors couldn't help me. And today, we're going to look at a man who has a son that no one could help but Jesus. No one could help but Jesus. The, the man, the official, had power, but yet he had to go to Jesus to get healing, to get help. Now, just to review the background, Paul, Paul covered the background very well last week. Um, the main emphasis of the Gospel of John is found in John 20, 31. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these things are written. In, in John 20, he basically says the whole book is written for the effect that Jesus will be known as the Messiah, the Son of God, one with God. And by believing in him, you will have life in his name. That's the purpose of this book. And just, I just want to briefly walk through the context of where we find this passage in. Because it's helpful to think of what the writer is, has written up to this point in the context in order to understand what the thrust, what he's trying to get across. If you read a passage out of context, you can kind of bring whatever meaning you want into it. But if you have the context, it makes it so much bigger. It makes it come to life. So in chapter 1, it's called the, uh, most theologians call this the prologue. That's where Jesus is made visible as the, as the visible word, as the word in flesh. He is the word of God that's come into flesh. He is one with the Father in the Spirit. And he's even testified by John, who, the baptizer, not the apostle. He's testified that he's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. So there's this analogy that Christ has come. He's the Messiah of the whole world. Not just the Jews, but the whole world. Christ has come to take away the sins of every man. Chapter 2 is where Paul preached from last week. It's the, the wedding feast at Cana. And Jesus turns the water into wine. And his disciples are said to believe on him. Their faith is growing in their, in their Savior. Chapter 3, Jesus is met by a religious Pharisee and also a leader named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes in the night to meet Jesus. Now, that interaction, which is very famous, includes John 3.16. And we're not told what the outcome of that conversation is. Uh, from, from church history, we're told that Nicodemus did later on become a believer. But... There was a journey of faith that had begun as Nicodemus conversed with Jesus, as he talked about what he knew about Jesus, what he knew about the law. And so that was chapter 3. Chapter 4, the Samaritans are encountering Jesus. And Jesus comes to Sychar. It says he had to go through Samaria. He comes to Sychar 
stops at the well and has this encounter and with this woman at the well of Sychar. And she goes into town and tells everyone about Jesus. And the Samaritans are so amazed by Jesus' words that they go, why don't you stay with us? Stay with us for, for a, a little while. And so this is where we pick up, is right after Jesus has stayed with the Pharisees. It says he stayed for two days. So for two days, he had, uh, he had stayed there in Samaria. And there's this fascinating statement that actually is also recorded in the synoptics, where it says, he says, after two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, hometown is actually a bigger word than just what is seen in the text. Um, hometown actually can be country or his own region. And so, in, in this, Jesus is basically saying the prophet has no honor in his hometown. There seems to be a contrast between how the Samaritans accepted Jesus based on his word. It says they believed. In fact, they go back to the woman at the well, and they say, we believe not just because of what you said, but because of what he says. And so they believe Jesus based on his word. Well, the Galileans, what does it say there in 45? So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Why did they welcome him? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they saw what he had done, but they weren't believing just on his word. They wanted to see, it seems, miracles. They wanted to see signs. And so this is where this, this passage uh, in the context is picking up. And, and so Jesus says that a prophet's not accepted in his own hometown. He comes into Galilee. There's a huge, probably every county stopped in because it, it took longer than, I mean, today we can go from here to New York in a couple hours. But back then, they had to walk everywhere. So it took days to walk, you know, let's say 14 to 20 miles would take a day to walk in. Whereas today, we can go, you know, hundreds, even maybe a thousand miles. If you take a plane, you're there in a fraction of the time that it took them. So we have to think in their turn. So as Jesus is walking up Galilee, I think I have some maps here to kind of show you. The first map is, uh, shows you the whole region. And so Samaria is right there. And Jesus, most Jews would actually go across the Jordan. It's hard to see, but they would go around Samaria. They wouldn't actually go through Samaria. So Jesus had gone the short route through Samaria up to Cana is where we pick it up. And the next, the next slide actually shows a bigger uh, blow-up of Galilee. And so Jesus comes up to Cana. If you look over on the, the right, there's Capernaum. Now, on the map, it looks small. It's only about 14 miles. But it would take a day for a person to travel over that, the hill country because you're going uphill from Capernaum to Cana. It's all into the hill country. So as you come down to Galilee, it, it falls off, and, and there's... You go down into a valley, so to speak, of the Sea of Galilee. So Capernaum is, is a very large city for Galilee. Cana is a very kind of small city. It's, it's not big at all. It's not really renowned. There's, um, there's not even, they're not even sure exactly 
where it is. They found ruins in a couple different places, but it's about that region is where Cana probably was. Um, so as he, he comes into Cana, it says in the text, he came to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water and the wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So Capernaum is where the official's at. He hears Jesus has come to Cana. And what does he do? He goes to where Jesus is. My first observation for you guys to kind of write down, the first point, is go to Jesus for your every need. When we go to Jesus, we need to go to him with our needs. And so this, this official, who was probably an official in the court of Herod, may not have even been Jewish. He may have been a Gentile. And if he was Jewish, he would have been a more secular Jew than, than a religious Jew because he's, he's serving this secular king. He's, he's standing in his court. And Herod was known to be a very not-that-great king as far as uh, the religious Jews saw him. Uh, he killed a lot of his own, own blood, actually. He killed a lot of his own family in order to keep his kingdom from being taken from him. So this man, who was an official in Herod's kingdom, in Herod's court, had a son, and he was at the point of death. So it's going to take over probably about a day, maybe a little bit more, in order for him to get from point A, which is Capernaum, to point B, which is Cana. But this man was desperate. He probably had considerable resources. He probably could have called any doctor. He probably did call doctors. And yet, the doctors couldn't help him. The doctors had no ability to help him. Now, today, thank God for the common grace of doctors. Thank God that we have doctors, and, and this is not at all a means of bashing doctors. God does use doctors. But in this case, the doctors couldn't help this man. And there's actually a, a story that Jonathan and Aaron were telling me about a friend from Africa that actually said, every time someone would, would say, well, why do you pray so much? He said, well, in, in Africa, we, we don't have Tylenol. And, and it took him a while to realize, he's like, you know, so around the world, our dependence on God as brothers and sisters in Christ is much greater than here. We have, I think, a crutch when we look at doctors and we look at and again, not that those aren't good means of grace, but we have to be aware that our first and foremost aspect as Christians is to go to the throne of grace because there we find mercy. There we find grace in our time of need. So when we have a time of need, we go to Jesus. We go to the throne of grace. Now, Jesus actually modeled this for us. Jesus, even though he was God, he was one with God, he's the son of God, Jesus went to the Father and he taught his disciples to pray in the midst of their greatest needs. So Jesus, first of all, prayed when overwhelmed with need. If you look at, on the screen here at uh, Matthew 9, 35 to 38, and Jesus went through all the cities in the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were, were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the, the disciples, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Christ took the busy times, his needy times, and pointed his disciples to pray. He pointed them to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out more laborers and more workers because the work was, was so great. Secondly, Jesus prayed when life was busy. In Mark 1.35, it says, He would rise, he rose, excuse me, <clears throat> and rising very early in the morning while it was dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So Jesus, who was one with the Father, felt that need of constant communion. He felt that need of constant dependence. Even in busy times, in overwhelming needs, uh, need times. Uh, the third one is before important decisions. In Luke 6, 12 through 13, it says, In those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he called apostles. So Jesus, even in his decisions, he prayed. After achievements, the fourth one I have down here, after achievements, he prayed. Immediately he made his disciples. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. He made his disciples get into the boat, go over to the other side, and while he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up into the mountain and prayed by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. So Jesus prayed after achievements as well. If you think about it, at least for me, that tends to be the time that I don't pray is after achievements. I think the other ones are no-brainers. Like, we pray before decisions, we pray. But it seems like, oftentimes, God has to draw my attention back to the cross. God has to draw my attention back to him after achievements. And so, so we need all those, we need to remember the Lord set an example in each of those that we need to pray. Pray continually. Pray in our need. Pray in busy times. Pray before important decisions. Uh, Luther actually said that he was so busy that he had to pray three hours because he had so much to do during the day. That's kind of foreign to us, isn't it? That's really foreign to us. We don't look at prayer as an investment. We look at prayer as kind of a task to get done sometimes. At least I do. I guess I should refer to myself. But... Um, but maybe some of you struggle in the same areas. You know, do you look at prayer as a task to get done, or do you look at it as communion with the Father? Do you look at it as sweet fellowship, that you're investing time with your Heavenly Father and trusting that He's going to direct your steps during the day, in the busy times, in important decisions? We need... We need to dwell in the presence of the Father. We need to dwell in God's presence before the throne of grace. We need his help. We need him to show up in our lives daily. We need Jesus from the first to the last moments of every day. We need to see ourselves in this man. Do we go to Jesus in our deepest need? Do we go to Jesus when... We need, or is Jesus a second thought? Do we go to the medicine cabinet when we're sick and then say, oh, well, maybe after having a sickness for three or four days, you go, oh, maybe I should ask for prayer. 
We need to go to Jesus in our deepest need. We need to intercede for those in our presence that are in deepest need. Secondly, second point of this passage, I believe, is go to Jesus and believe he will work. Now, do you think that man would have taken a day journey to get to Jesus if he didn't believe that Jesus could do something? I don't think so. I mean, that's a long journey to take. So, why did Jesus then say, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe? I think he was, he was probably talking to him, but secondly, I think he was talking to those around, because there was a crowd probably. It says that they welcomed him at Galilee. And so there's this crowd around, and this man comes and says, please heal my son, he's almost dead. He's dying. And you see this man begging. What did Jesus respond? He's like, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus seems to lament the lack of faith. Jesus seems to lament the fact that they were looking at the outward signs and miracles. And these signs, now th- think, about, think about this. It, they call them signs. Do you go to, when you see an exit sign, do you go and try to step into that exit sign to get out the door? Well, when they saw signs that Jesus was doing, in essence, they were looking at the sign, but not at who was doing the sign. And so they were looking at all the miracles. They were like, oh, these are great. This is, I mean, it's almost like a circus performer to them. They, they saw that Jesus could do these, he's like the copper field of... of uh, the first century. He's doing all these cool things and they're like, oh, this is so great. Let's go watch Jesus. But was that the point that Jesus was trying to do these signs for? Was that the point? No. It says in uh, John 2 that he did signs in order to reveal his glory to his disciples. So he did signs. It's almost like pulling off the veil, um, peeling back a little bit of his, of his glory and saying, hey, hey, look, I'm not just a mere mortal. I'm not just a a human. I am God in flesh. I am God the Son. I'm the Word, the Logos, that has come to the world. A sign is a pointer of something outside of itself. So signs are never, and miracles are never meant to just be miracles or signs. There's a purpose. God's sovereign. He does these things in order to bring his name and himself glory. Not for us to worship the signs or the gifts, but to realize that there's a giver and there is a miracle worker that is at work. God is at work today. Do we, do we have that sense or do we just do we wake up and we go, well, here's another day. I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I wake up, I feel my, my flesh wakes up before my, before my spirit does. And so I, I'm like, oh, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't, I don't want to go and pray. But you know what? When you go before the throne of grace, there's, there's amazing power. And I find that I never, uh, I'll raise your hand if you've ever prayed and you, you said, well, I regretted that time I spent. 
Is there anyone here that regrets time spent in prayer? But yet, so many times, we, we pause before we go to Jesus. We, we go, well, I don't know if I have enough time right now to, to go and spend time in prayer. At least I do. Maybe some of you struggle with the same things. <laughs> um, so Jesus makes this statement about signs and miracles. And he says, the official, now, did the official walk away after this? No. He says, sir, come down before my, fa- before my child dies. The father says, come down before my child dies. And so he still believed that Jesus would work. He had faith that Jesus would work. Man continued to ask Jesus to heal his son. Jesus was his only hope. Jesus was the only way that his son would be healed. And he knew that. He trusted that Jesus was, that the heart of Christ was good. Remember in, in John, it actually says Jesus, Jesus did not, I mean, God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. And so God didn't send his son in order to show our guilt. We stand here today because of Christ, because of his son, because of Jesus. We stand forgiven. We stand righteous before the throne of grace. And so when we come into the throne of grace, the father doesn't see a weak, and helpless sinner. He sees his son. Think about that. Because oftentimes, when I come into the throne of grace, I feel like a weak and helpless sinner. And I am a weak and helpless sinner. But I need to see and trust that the Father sees his son when we come to the throne of grace. There should be an expectancy, a hope that God's going to surprise his church today. That God's going to surprise his child today, his son or daughter today, that there's a hope, an expectation that God is at work. That when we come to the throne of grace, it's not a request for him to work, but him to continue to work. He's already at work. He's already working. Christ was already at work. What makes us distinct from the world as Christians? What makes us different from the world as Christians. Moses. Moses is a good example of this. And I, I just want to point to Exodus 33. Because Moses says, unless your presence goes, God's standing there, he's, he's upset at the people of Israel. And so Moses comes to Jesus, to, to God, I'm sorry, to God to intercede for the people. And God says, I'm not going up with you anymore. I'm sick and tired of this. They made a golden calf. They made all these things. I'm not going up with you anymore. You, have a, you are a stiff-necked people. And what does Moses do? He pleads with God. He says, God, please go up with us. Because if your presence does not go up with us, if your presence does not go up with us, we're no different than the rest of the nations. God's presence, His Holy Spirit living in you because of Christ, is why we are different is why we can go to the throne of grace to find favor. I mean, think, about, think about this. All throughout the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God's face was not visible. In fact, in that same passage, 
God tells Moses, you cannot see my face or else you will die. And yet, in John 1, it says that Jesus is a visible manifestation of God. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus is the very form of God. So, Jesus, suddenly, we have a picture of who God is in flesh. That is truly amazing. And not only is he a picture of who God is in flesh, he knows our weaknesses. He knows every temptation, every sickness, every trial. He's experienced our weaknesses in the flesh, Hebrews says. So, when we come before him, believing he'll work, we come before a good and faithful God who knows every aspect about you, probably better than any of you know yourself. And so he knows what you need, even before you ask it, but he wants you to come. He wants you to ask. He wants you to believe. He wants you to grow in faith. How do you grow in faith? What, how can you grow in belief? D.L. Moody recounted that a man, that as a young man, he prayed for faith. As a man, he prayed for more faith, as if God would hit him with a lightning bolt of faith. Until he read in Romans 10:17 that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. And so before he was praying for faith with a closed Bible, suddenly he opened his Bible, prayed for faith, and he, he said his faith grew like he, you couldn't believe. And so pray with an open Bible. Pray expecting for God to work. Pray that... God is at work and ask him to ask him to to help you believe help you to have faith to help you grow because faith is a gift from God but don't pray with a closed Bible I thought that was an amazing story I I think it goes along with with what this man believed so he he heard the word of Jesus and what did Jesus say go your son's going to live now did the man stay around no he went up and the the third point here I want to share is Go to Jesus trusting his promises and his word. Trusting his word. So starting in verse 51, he, he goes up, his servants meet him, and then he asks, they say, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, is basically what they tell him. The father knew that was the hour that Jesus had said, your son will live. And he himself believed in his entire household. So, in the last passage, in Previously, it says that he believed the word of Jesus and left, right? In this passage, it says he believed in his entire household. So there's, there's a level, there's a progression of belief and faith in Christ. It's not a one-time event where you go, okay, I believe, and I walk the aisle, and now I can go live whatever way I want. You, it's, a, it's a growing in that faith. It's a, it doesn't stop there. Every day, the, the reality of the kingdom is that you repent and believe. You encounter the gospel. You come to Christ. You say, you plead the blood of Christ on your day. You plead before the throne of grace that you might find help in your time of need. So Jesus has sent him on his way. He believed. And his son lived. Just as Jesus had said, at the hour that Jesus had said, as I was thinking about this, I thought of someone who has been an example to me throughout the ages, uh, a Mr. George Mueller. He is an example of God's faithful 
weakness and his working in the midst of our weakness. The first, I have a couple quotes here. Mueller lived, just, just to let you know, if, if you haven't heard of George Mueller, he lived a few years back, 1805 to 1898, and he raised over $5 million for missions in an orphanage, in four orphanages. George's conviction was not to ever ask anyone for any money. So no matter how, how much need he had, rather than asking people, he would go to his heavenly father. In fact, one of the statements, he says, I have joyfully dedicated my life to the object of exemplifying how much may be accomplished by prayer and faith. How much may be accomplished by prayer and faith. I I think that's an astounding statement, personally. Um, Another statement, he says, Friends often say, I have so much to do, so many people to see. I cannot find time for scripture study and prayer. Perhaps there's not many who have more than I to do. For more than half a century, I have never known a day when I had not more business than I could get through. For four years, I have annually replied to 3,000 letters, and most of these passed through my own hand. When as a pastor of a church with 12,000, then as a pastor of a church with 12,000 believers, great has been my care. Besides, I have had charge of five, I'm sorry, so five immense orphanages, a publishing depot, a printing and circulation of millions of tracts, books, and Bibles, but I have always made it a rule to never begin work until I have had a good season with God and his word. So this saint was busy beyond any of you or I, beyond our schedules, and yet he still made it a priority to have time for God and his word. In fact, he goes on to say that he made his soul, his chief goal in every day was that his soul would be happy in God. What's your chief goal of tomorrow? What's your chief goal of this week? Hmm. I also wanted to point out, too, that not only did this official believe, but the text says his whole household believed. His whole household believed. He led his household into belief in Christ. Can you imagine the celebration when he got home? His son is living, and he shares the account of what Jesus had done. How could his wife not believe? How could his other children not believe? How could his friends, maybe even his neighbors heard this, how could they not believe? It transformed his life. Prayer transformed his life. It transformed his family. Men, how are you leading your family to the throne of grace? How are you leading your household to Jesus? How? Do you, do you exemplify prayer? Do you pray with your children? Do you pray with your wife? This is an area I need to grow in. I seriously need God's help. I need to grow in faith. 
I'm out there with you sitting there listening to the sermon because I need, I need God's help. We're not left as orphans. We have the help of the Holy Spirit. We have the help of God in spirit to fill us and to lead us into all truth. It's by that spirit that we cry, Abba. We cry, Father. So, fathers, are you going to the Father? Are you trusting in his guidance as you lead spiritually your families? Sisters and brothers, we need to feel the depth of our need in God. If it's not physical need, it's still spiritual need. We need to believe his word. We need to believe and trust that he's going to meet us in our need. The nature of the kingdom of God, as I said before, is belief. Repent and believe. You see that throughout the scriptures over and over again. Jesus promises that promises Jesus' promises are always true. We can believe his word like no other word. When someone tells you that they will do something and they are a faithful friend, do you believe that they'll do it? Do Do you trust that they'll do it? Jesus is that faithful friend. Jesus promises to work for our good. We love God. We are called to love God and love others. Jesus is working for our good. How desperate is your need for Jesus to work in your life? Do you feel your need? How's your prayer life? Are you going before the throne of grace? Does your conversation end after you spend the morning in prayer? Or does it continue throughout the day? Are you asking the Holy Spirit's Guidance and direction in every aspect of your life. The band could come up. I want you. I want to read a, a couple verses here in application. Just, just think about this. In Romans eight twenty six, Paul writes. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit helps us pray. And then in Luke 11, 9 through 13, And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks? Jeff, can you come up?
Dear Father, we are in need. We are in utter need of you. We need your presence. We need your spirit. We need your son. Just use your word to transform our lives. Help us to enter before your throne of grace that we might find mercy. That we might find help in our time of need. Thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Work in our midst today. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Father. up there with all his doubts and his worries and his fears going to Jesus, trusting him, like Phil said, with his need, uh, believing that he's going to do it, and coming back, it's a downhill trip going back, he meets the people who say, your son is healed. And just, just that thought that Christ did. And then like Phil pointed out, what would it have been like when he gets home? That whole trip just must have been such a joyous trip. And then to see his family. And then... What does he do with his family when he gets there? And how could it not be different? And like Phil pointed out to us, you know, because this is where we want to be. We want to be on that trip home, and we want to be at the family when we, when we get there. But we know that we have to walk up that hill trusting in Jesus as well. But just that we, we want to have that time in prayer. We want to have that time in fellowship. We want to spend that time with each other. Those times that they must have spent together when their son uh, was healed must have just been amazing those times of prayer and uh, certainly Christ has done that for us and that's kind of what our goals should be like when we have our times in prayer as Phil has encouraged us so with that we just want to close uh, just thanks again Phil wonderful wonderful job and uh, just to pray Father God we come before you now and just what a beautiful picture Father someone who comes with great needs Father and uh, makes this great journey uphill to get to your son, Jesus. Someone who comes seeing his need and saying that you are the one that can fulfill it. And, Father, you, you heal his son, and he meets with those on the way down, that triumphant uh, trip to see his family, to see his healed son. And then these gifts, Father, were not just for the son, not just for this father, but for the entire family. And uh, we just thank you for that. May our homes and may our families and may our lives be that also. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a good week.